You can turn over to the book of Esther, chapter 9. We're going to be finishing this up today as everything comes to a conclusion here tonight. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, and this is, of course, the target month, on the thirteenth day, the time for the king's command and his decree to be executed, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. Well, that's one thing that will paralyze most people is fear. And the fear of the Jews came upon them all. The word here, though, in uh, verse 1, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. And this is a phrase that is derived from the Hebrew word. And we put that in there and also put in there how you can pronounce it because if you looked at it, you may not have figured it out. But it's pronounced halfak, to change, to turn, or to overturn. To change, to turn, or to overturn. This is the first time we've seen this word used in the book of Esther. It is used a number of times in the Word of God. But it's used here to describe that the opposite occurred. Now, if you read your King James Bible, it actually words it quite a bit differently from this, but we still get the same, same meaning. But on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Now, we have always seen throughout history that people have hated the Jews. It just seems to be one of those things that have gone around. They're one of the oldest nations around, one of the longest lasting ones. And it just seems like there's always someone around who just hates them and who just cannot be content with them being around. And that just isn't normal. You know, if you don't like, even if it's natural, if you just don't like some people, well, you just ignore, just, you know, go someplace else. Now, spiritually speaking, you know, that's not what we're supposed to do, but we're just talking about natural people. If you really despise someone that much or, or some group of people, well, then they just go someplace else where they're not. Why in the world do you sit there and have to eliminate them in order for that to, to be the case? But they're still facing that even the, to this day over there in the, in the small nation of Israel. They are surrounded by neighbors who desire nothing better than to eliminate them and to see them completely annihilated from the earth. That's one of the things that uh, holds up the Palestinian arguments and uh, um, the, the treaties and things is that the Palestinians, uh, uh, just like most of the neighbors, don't want to coexist with Israel. They want Israel gone. They don't want to have a state along with Israel. They want Israel gone. They don't just want them to move to another continent. They want them gone. And that's just something, you know, as Christians, we just can't relate to. Because we've been changed on the inside and we don't want anybody gone. We want to see them changed. We want to see them get born again, but we don't want anyone gone. But this is how they were. So even in the nation of Persia, or the, the empire of Persia, where many nations were conquered, there were groups of people throughout all the place that wanted this nation gone. Now, Persia had, of course, taken over the empire from Babylon and expanded it to other, other places. And Babylon, when they conquered someone, took them captive and brought them back and displaced them from their land. So we had that practice done with a lot of other countries, not just Israel. And so that's why people were scattered all over the place. 
but uh, the Jews had certainly kept their nationality. Now we see this word used also in verse 22 of the ninth chapter, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday. So we see the word there, turned, is this, this same word. Well, God, as we've seen in the times past, God's power, God has power to bring about hafak, a change, a turn, and overturn those things that are against us. Well, it says that the Jews gathered together and that no one could withstand them because they were able to gather together. They didn't just have to be separate. They were allowed to gather together and to form their own mini-army and dare anyone who wanted to come against them. And as we'll read down the road, it seemed like that in some places they may have taken the offensive and actually gone after some people. Uh, I know that you wanted us to be gotten rid of, so we're going to get rid of you. So no one could withstand them, for fear of them fell on all those around. Well, it's real hard to attack those that you're afraid of. That's what Israel ran into when they were coming into the promised land. They were afraid of the inhabitants, and it was hard for them to overcome them. In verse 3, And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. So he was given a pretty high position to begin with, but he was able to take that power and take the authority and use it in such a way he probably operated in, in wisdom from God just much like Daniel did. And everything he did was uh, caused to prosper, you know, much like Daniel and Joseph and others. And as you have someone that God is prospering the things in your hand, well, you put more things in their hand. And so the king probably put more power and more things in their hand. And so the governors and the satraps and the people that were in authority, in leadership, were basically under Mordecai. And so they felt like, well, if he's over us, and here's the two sides, we better take his side. Because if we don't take his side, he's either going to remove us or worse. We've already seen what happened to Haman. And so they probably just said, whether they like the Jews, or whether they like Mordecai, that didn't matter. They're going to do this because this is the, this is the best self-preservation way to go. So his power and influence was growing. All the satraps and the governors went to the Jew side because of Mordecai. Verse 5, Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? Do what you please with those who hate you. <laughs> and in Sushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, and there's a whole list of names here which I'm not even going to try and read. And these are his sons. And basically what, you want, what I want you to see from all this list of names is his sons were 100, had 100% Persian names. That's what we basically know from this, this uh, listing of his sons. So verse 10, The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Sushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. So on that day, the number of those who were killed were brought... Now, that's, this is normal. In fact, the Persians would write in their little books, their little logs, exactly how many died in every single battle for every single day. They had exact numbers. Now this one, it seems like the number was rounded. 500. 
But generally, they were given exact numbers, and they would write inside their little book, 524, 637, or this day, and they would just write them on down, and so we had all those things, but this apparently was just a, a roughed-out number. So, verse 12, And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Sushan, the citadel, and 10 sons of Haman. What they have done in the rest of the king's... Or what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. Now, why in the world he's thinking that she wants more? I don't know. We've had a lot of months that have gone by and all she's ever asked is this one thing. But anyway, he asked again. It'll be granted to you up to... Well, he didn't do it up to the half the kingdom, but what is your request? It shall be done. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who were in Sushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Now, what is the condition of Haman's sons? They are dead. Why do you hang someone? It's not to kill them. It's for display purposes. You hang them on the gallows. and Now, if they're alive, you hang them on the gallows until they die. But these are dead, so you just hang them there for people to see. Because they're already dead. So we just want to show. So she says, Let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows, so the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Sushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Sushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men of Sushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. That sounds like a lot of people. And certainly 75,000 is a lot of people. There is one discrepancy in this. In this text that we translate our Bible from, it is 75,000. When the Jews translated the Septuagint, they wrote 15,000. So, take your pick. No real reason why the Jews would have lowered the number. It's, and so we really don't know why that difference is there. So anyway, it's either 15,000 or it's 75,000. What we do know is that anybody who was an enemy of the Jews was killed. <laughs> so it really doesn't matter how many people died. It just matters the who. So the remainder of the Jews and the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay ha a hand on the plunder. Now the original decree allowed them to take good plunder because Haman's decree said that they could take the Jews' plunder. But it is emphasized several times in the, in the passage that the Jews do not touch the plunder. Now, one time it's used of the, of the ten sons of Haman. And we know why they didn't take their plunder because that was given to Esther. The king gave it to Esther and then she gave Haman charge over the house, but she couldn't give away the house because it was a gift to the king. So it belonged to Esther. We don't want to take this. This is Esther's. That would get the king mad. <laughs> you don't want to get the king mad. He doesn't do so well when he gets mad. Or at least it doesn't work out so well for other people. So we're, that's probably one reason why they wouldn't leave that stuff alone. But it seemed that all the peop, people in Sushan, when they killed those who were enemies, left their stuff alone. And all those who were in the rest of the province left their stuff alone. So if you have all these people, all of whom are leaving the stuff alone, Every single one of them are leaving the stuff alone. And the decree says, take the stuff. They're probably not all doing it on their own. Somehow, 
word must have gotten around. We don't want people to think we're greedy. We don't want to think we're doing this for money. So leave the stuff alone. We have the decree that we're allowed to do it. But we're going to show them that even though we're allowed to do it, we're not going to do it. And we're just going to take away the enemies. And we'll let this stuff alone. So no one can ever say we did it to get rich. No one can ever say we did it for the money. The only reason we did it was because they were the enemies of the Jews. And we were protecting ourselves. And that would seem to be the best guess on it as to, as to what all had happened. So verse 17, This was on the 13th of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Not bad. Of course, they didn't they had to use their own stuff because they didn't take the other stuff. So, <laughs> But the Jews who were at Sushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So the, the Jews who were inside the city of Sushan, because it was a walled city, for whatever reason, they felt like they couldn't get all the enemies on the one day. And so they asked for a second day. Now, this is either for just the city of Sushan or for all of the walled cities in the province or in the, in the kingdom. It seems like how it's worded here, it's just Sushan, but there are some other things that seem to indicate it was all the walled cities. But anyway, whichever way it was, everyone else let it go. But at least the folks in Sushan decided we need another day. So they took another day. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feastings. So this is all the ones who were in the unwalled town. So those who were in the walled towns may have been doing the same thing the folks were over at Sushan. So they, they were at feast, gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. So this is the things they did. They had feastings, they had gladness, and they sent presents to one to another. What's that sound like? Sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? <laughs> now, if so, it would have to be Christmas in March because the month of Adar, Adar generally falls in the month of March. Not Christmas in July, but Christmas in March. This is generally when it falls. Now, again, it doesn't always fall in March because they have that funny calendar where every month is 30 days and every once in a while they throw in an extra month. So let me get on to verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday and they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should be returned on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves, and their descendants, and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year, according to the written instructions, and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, 
in every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim as their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they would decree for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. <clears throat> so Mordecai sends this letter, establishes a holiday, and it's a feast day for the Jews. It is set for the 14th and the 15th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. The 14th and 15th day of the 12th month. As we said, this usually falls in the month of March. It is always a month before Passover. No matter what month or what year we are in, whether in the leap year or, or the extra month of the year or whatever, it doesn't matter because Passover is in the first month. This is in the 12th month, the last month. Last month always comes before the first month. And the first month always comes after 12th month. So the Passover will always be after after the Feast of Purim. Now this is a day for feasting, joy and celebration, and even the giving of gifts. I'm told that some of the, the Jews today, when they celebrate this, uh, <clears throat> they celebrate this with much feasting, much joy, much drinking. They feel it is their obligation as good Jews to celebrate the Feast of Purim with much drinking, much joy, and much feasting, even if they don't drink. <laughs> now, I'm told uh, there, there are some funny things that they have uh, uh, about this. Let me read some of these things to you. Uh, well, but the, this, is, this is the first religious ceremony ordained for the celebration of Purim is... The, or, I'm sorry, the first religious ceremony ordained for the celebration of Purim is the reading of the book Esther. It is called the, the Megillah. That's what they refer to as the book of Esther. Now, as far as the customs and observances, I wrote this. This came from one of the Jewish, Jewish uh, sites on this. Purim is celebrated on the 14th day of Adar, which is usually in March. The 13th of the day is the day that Haman chose for the extermination of the Jews and the day that the Jews battled their enemies for their lives. On the day afterwards, the 14th, they celebrated their survival in cities that were walled in the time of Joshua. Purim is celebrated on the 15th of the month because the book of Esther says that in Sushan, a walled city, deliverance from the massacre was not complete until the next day. The 15th is referred to as Sushan Purim. In leap years, when there are two months, months of Adar, Purim is celebrated in the second month of Adar, so it is always one month before Passover. The 14th day of the first Adar, in a leap year is celebrated as a minor holiday called Purim Katan, which means Little Purim. There are no specific observances for Purim Katan. However, a person should celebrate the holiday and should not mourn or fast. Some communities also observe a Purim Katan on the anniversary of any day when their community was saved from a catastrophe, destruction, evil, or oppression. The word Purim means lots and refers to the lottery that Haman used to choose the date for the massacre. The Purim holiday is preceded by a minor feast or fast, the Fast of Esther, 
which commemorates Esther's three days of fasting in preparation for her meeting with the king. The primary commandment related to Purim is to hear the reading of the book of Esther. The book of Esther is commonly known as, as we told you, the, the Megillah, which, which means scroll. Although there are five books of Jewish scripture that are properly referred to as Megillahs, Esther, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Song of, Song of Songs, and Lamentations, this is the one people usually mean when they speak of the Megillah. It is, a custom, it is customary to boo, hiss, stab feet, and rattle grangers, noisemakers, whenever the name of Haman is mentioned in the service. <laughs> the purpose of this custom is to blot out the name of Haman. We are also commanded to eat, drink, and be merry. According to the Talmud, a person is required to drink until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. <laughs> No opinions differ as to exactly how drunk that is. A person should, be, should not become so drunk that he might violate other commandments or get seriously ill. <laughs> In addition, recovering alcoholics or others who might suffer serious harm from alcohol are exempt from this obligation. In addition, we are commanded to send out gifts of food or drink and to make gifts of charity. The sending of gifts or f- of food and drink is referred to as Shalak Maros, little sending out portions. Among Asenic Jews, a common treat at this time of year is, boy, I hope I get this right, Hamantashen, literally Haman's pockets. <laughs> These triangular fruit-filled cookies are supposed to represent Haman's three-cornered hat. My recipe is included, and he actually included the recipe. I've actually eaten some of these. Our neighbor is Jewish. And uh, one time, that they, when we had that really, well, I can't say the one time, one of those really huge storms we had last year. Uh, uh, the two of them were out there shoveling their driveway. And we just thought, Christian, I thought that's, that's ridiculous. So we went over and we did their entire driveway and their, um, their walkway in front. And uh, they were so grateful they put these things into a bag and they brought them over to us. And I'll tell you what, they are good. <laughs> they are very good. I would, eat, I would go over and do their thing again so I can have some. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go over next time and say, just a requirement, we'll have to have a little bag of the... <laughs> I, I ought to just call them Haven's Pockets and see what, they, uh, see what they do. It is customary to hold carnival-like celebrations on Purim to perform plays and parodies and to hold beauty contests. I have heard that the usual prohibitions against cross-dressing are lifted during this holiday. <laughs> but I am not certain about that. Americans sometimes refer to Purim as the Jewish Mardi Gras. Purim is not subject to the Sabbath-like restrictions on work that some other holidays are. However, some sources indicate that we should not go out, should not go about our ordinary business on Purim out of respect for the holiday. So that is the uh, uh, customs that comes from their their site about these things, or one of their one of the sites that they have. Uh, I put this in your outline too. That this is not a God-ordained holiday, but one created by man to remember what God did. All the other feasts, the seven feasts of Israel, were God-ordained, God-commanded. Each one has a Sabbath somehow involved with it. And they all have exact rules as to what they were supposed to do during those things. And each of those seven feasts looked forward to an event. This one did not. But there was no problem with them having a holiday to remember what God did. 
I don't know if God was involved with everything that was that they did in celebrating Purim. <laughs> but anyway, that's what they did. Now there's some modern day echoes of Purim that I also found on this and found these to be very interesting. Uh, the Pesach or the Passover Seder reminds us that in every generation there are those who rise up to destroy us. But God saves us from their hand. In the time of the book of Esther, Haman was one of those who tried to destroy the Jews. In modern times, there have been two significant figures who have threatened the Jewish people. And there are echoes of Purim in their stories. Many have noted the echoes of Purim in the Nuremberg War Crime Trials. In the book of Esther, Haman's ten sons were hanged. In 1946, ten of Hitler's top associates were put to death by hanging for their war crimes, including the crime of murdering six million Jews. An 11th associate of Hitler, uh, Goring, committed suicide the night before the execution. A parallel to the suicide of Haman's daughter recorded in the Talmud. There are rumors that Goring was a transvestite, making that even more accurate of a parallel. One of the men seems to have been aware of the parallel. On the way to the gallows, Julius Stryker shouted, Perum Feast 1946. It is also interesting that in the traditional text of the Megillah, the book of Esther, in the list of the names of Haman's sons, the letters Tav in the first name, Shin in the seventh name, and Zayin in the tenth name are written in smaller letters than the rest. The numerical value of Tav, Shin, and Zayin is 707, and these ten men were hanged in the Jewish year 5,707. The thousands digits is routinely skipped when writing Jewish years, and there are no numbers for thousands in Hebrew renumbering. They were not hanged on Purim, though. They were hanged on Hashanah Rabbah. Another echo of Purim is found in the Soviet Union a few years later. In early 1953, Stalin was planning to deport most of the Jews in the Soviet Union to Siberia. But just before his plans came to fruition, he suffered a stroke and died a few days later. He suffered that stroke on the night of March the 1st, 1953, the night after Purim. Note the Jewish feast, the, the Jewish days ends at sunset. You will see March 1st on the calendar of Purim. The plan to deport Jews was not carried out. The story is told of Shabed, uh, boy, that rest of that name I would not really want to try and do with. Or just say, oh, the 1953 Purim, um, the, they led a Purim gathering and was asked to give a blessing for the Jews of the Soviet Union who were known to be in great danger. And the Rebbe in, instead told a cryptic story about a man who was voting in the Soviet Union and heard people cheering for the candidate. Hurrah! Hurrah! The man did not want to cheer, but was afraid to not cheer. So he said, Hurrah! But in his heart, he meant it in Hebrew, Hurrah! H-U-R-A. Which means, He is evil. The crowd at the Rebbe's 1953 gathering began chatting, Hurrah! H-U-R-A. He is evil. Regarding Stalin. And that night, Stalin suffered the stroke that led to his death a few days later. Very interesting stuff, huh? Moral of the story of Purim, don't come against the Jews. And we're going to see people are going to try and do this again because in the battle of Ezekiel, we have the nations that will come together. Uh, this, these nations seem to be Russia, China, and Iran. 
Right now, as we would look at those uh, areas that were depicted in the Word of God, these would be the nations that would be uh, seeming to come against them, which right now we're seeing quite an uh, alliance between Russia, China, and Iran. And that these three nations come up against Israel and they seem to overwhelm Israel with numbers, but somehow God pulls out another God thing, turns the situation around, and what do we have? They, they spend years cleaning up the stuff and using it for fire, for, for fuel, uh, for, for quite a long time. Uh, for seven years, I believe the Word of God tells us. That's going to cause a rift in the balance of power in the world. And that rift is probably what Antichrist uses to assume leadership. Well, we put in your outline this. Hafak can come to any situation and at any time. It can come to any situation at any time. You don't we always know when it's going to be. But boy, we just got to keep on going with it. Esther got into a position where she was able to be queen. Again, not that God had to do this, not that God had to will for it to be done, but God took a look around at whatever situation the things were and who wanted to do evil and He used what was at His disposal. But He can use anything and would have used anything and didn't just have to put this girl into this position. But here we have the situation with Esther. Esther is, is the queen of King Xerxes. And as they are married, it is probable that since she is the queen, that they would have had a child. So who would have been a descendant of Esther? Who would have been a son? Now, if they had a son, what would that son have been? A prince, which would have then become a, a king. Now, if they had a son with the first queen, since she was knocked out of her position, more than likely that son would have been knocked out of his position. Now, we told you before, back back in the beginning of this, we spent some time looking at who the king, um, the, the real king of, of uh, Queen Esther was. Who, who was this king? And we showed you the different things that why it seems to be Xerxes was the right one. There is an argument out there that uh, does say that, that the, the Queen Esther did have a son and that his name was Darius. And that does seem to hold a lot of, a lot of truth in the, in the history. Uh, and so what happens was uh, a lot of Christians just kind of try and put a whole lot of things together and they look at the king who authorized the building of the temple. His name was Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede would not have been the son of Queen Esther. There was King Cyrus and there was Darius the Mede who were in, at uh, rulership at that time because this was the uh, empire of the Medes and the Persians. And it depends on where you put the book of Esther and who you see as the husband as to where you see this going out. If you look at it as being Xerxes, then you're going to be looking at this all happening around 470, 480 B.C. That would be the time frame of the whole thing. If you're looking at it to be uh, another king that would have had uh, a time frame for Darius, the Mede, to have been in position, well, then you're in about the mid-500s B.C. So it depends on which, which king that you see. But if it's as we seem, it seem, all evidence seems to really point to King Xerxes as being the one. And if Darius was truly the son, then the Darius who took the throne after this king 
is the Darius who authorized the building of the wall around Jerusalem and who worked with Nehemiah and would explain why Nehemiah had so much favor with the king because of his mother, the queen. But again, we can't prove any of that from the Bible. It just seemed to, to fall out that way. And uh, Queen Esther seemed to have been in the position of queen, from what I'm able to tell in history, for about 13 years. And of course, she doesn't hold the position of queen anymore if her husband isn't king. And I, I'm, I'm assuming from the way I saw the things in history that uh, uh, Xerxes died and that uh, Darius had uh, taken the, the throne after that or somehow some kind of thing like that had gone on. But anyway, it's told that she was in posi- position for about 13 years. And if Darius was truly a son of Esther, then Esther would certainly have had influence over her son. And that's why he had so much favor with Nehemiah and the building of the wall. So anyway, that's a possibility of what had gone on there, but we don't know for certain all the things that had gone on with that. What we do know is that as in with this situation, God can come in and turn any situation around. We looked at, uh, as we're going through here, we looked at a number of other situations where situations changed in a day. Where Joseph went from being a prisoner and in one day, he was not a prisoner. He was second in charge of the land. That's a big change. And I know he had been holding out for that change for a long time. And even when he had the, 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 the two king servants and he gave them the interpretation and he told the one who was going to come through, now don't you forget me, but two years later he's still down in the prison. And I'm sure he probably thought, oh, I thought that would be, be my time. I thought that would be the way that it would turn around for me. But oh, it didn't turn around. It didn't go. It didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. But as the as the Hebrew word hafak, God can turn anything around at any time. Israel came wandering into the Promised Land and saw giants. God can turn any situation around, any time. They ran away, but when they came back in under Joshua, they marched around the city. They marched around the city. And they marched around the city, and on the seventh day, they did it. Seven times. And then all of a sudden the walls fall in on the city. And they went from being laughed at marching around the city to have taken over one of the strongest cities in the entire city uh, region of Canaan. God turned things around in a day. God turned wandering Israelites on one side of the Red Sea that are sitting prey for the Egyptian army to be in totally vindicated and safe on the other side. And the army of Israel of Egypt wiped out in the middle. They went from being thirsty, dying of thirst, to having water come from a rock. The children of, of, of Israel in the New Testament went from being fearing Paul coming to their city. And in one day, God recruited him for a different cause. And things changed. And we can keep on going. We've covered many, many of the stories and you're just mentioning them in, in here. God turns things around constantly. And the thing that we have to take from the book of Esther is not that God has to set the stage in order to create great miracles. All that God needs is there to be a need and for people to be in faith. And God will turn any situation around any situation around. And God can use anybody. 
And God can use people and have them in places that you don't even know about. But don't you worry about it. Today could be the day God turns your situation around. I saw that uh, Phyllis had posted something like that on the Facebook. Y'all didn't see that. Uh, get up there and, and check that out. Somewhere, somebody's situation could be turning around today. And one of these times it could be you. You could be in a situation day after day, month after month, year after year. And then all of a sudden one day it's ready to turn. It's all ready to be turned around. And one day your life can change. And it's easy to believe God after the change. It's hard to believe God before. We have to get ourselves into a position where I will have the same amount of faith and confidence in God before the change as after. I go through the Old Testament, I go through the New Testament, and I look at these people who had their life situations changed in a day. Bad situations at work, bad situations with money, bad situations with health, health things, bad situations with enemies, bad situations with people. It doesn't matter. God turns it around. God can take people and turn them around in a day. But will He find us coming before Him and complaining and murmuring and griping and moaning? Or will He find us coming before God and say, Father God, I thank You that no matter what is going on, You are the God of Hafak, you can turn any situation around in a moment, in a day. You can turn them around. And God can turn our situations around. So will we be found in faith anticipating it? Or will we be doubting and in sorrow? There's our battle. Do we go in the way of doubt and sorrow? Or do you stay in the way of faith and anticipation? Where do we go? Doubt, sorrow, faith, anticipation. What we have to do as believers, as we read the book of Esther and other ones like it, is to keep on, Father God, I am going to keep on believing. I believe that Your Word is true. I believe that You are coming through for me. I believe that my situation is turning around. Paul wrote in the New Testament, as he listed all the things that had come against him, he said at the end, I thank my God. He has delivered me out of them all. How many of us would feel delivered if we were floating around for three days in the deep? Three days. How many of us would feel delivered after we just got beaten, thrown into the inner prison? But Paul saw every one of those situations turn around. And we can see our situations turn around too. Every single one but never get into a place where we follow after Israel's example and every time we see a thing that needs to turn, we gripe and we moan and we complain and we murmur and we doubt and we say we're going back. Oh, I'm not going this way. Oh, I'm changing course. <laughs> no. We tell that devil, you are not getting me to turn. I am following after my God and I am staying in the way of faith and I am staying in the way of anticipation. I am not giving in to anything else. So we celebrate Thanksgiving tomorrow. 
Thanksgiving is a great way to taste some of these things away. Always be giving thanks. We talked about that uh, some time ago. But always be thankful. People that are in doubt and sorrow are not thankful. They find reasons. Oh, why is it this way? Oh, why is it me? Oh, why do I have to go through this? No, don't do that. Get yourself in a, in, a, in a situation. And just, Father God, I thank you. No matter what situation I am, therein to be content. But I know every situation I am in can be turned around in just a day. Amen. Don't ever be like the guy who was, came up to the prophet and said, if God would do whatever miracle he, he announced, how could what you're saying come about? How can grain and flour sell for so little? How can that possibly happen? And the prophet turned to him and said, Well, you'll hear about it, but you're not going to see it. And when the news came, he was trampled at the gate and died. God doesn't take to that doubt, sorrow, and all that stuff so well. Be on the side of faith. Be on the side that says, Father God, I believe that you are turning my situation around, even when I can't see it. Even... I don't see how it's coming about. Oh, you're turning it around. I thank you for it. Father, we thank you for the way that you turn all situations around. That the things we see going on with people around us, with our jobs, with our bosses, with our neighbors, with our finances, with our health. That Father, you are the God who can turn all these things around. You are, you are the God of Halfak. God who can turn things around. And Father, you are working on our situation. Just as you worked on Joseph's, just as you worked on Israel's, just as you worked on Moses, Joshua, just as you worked on Paul, so many others. You are the God who turns things around. We thank you that we can stand believing, knowing that you are the God turns every situation into good. The people may have meant this for evil. People may have been trying to wipe us out. But, mm-mm, you're not going to let that happen. And we will stand believing. Stand knowing. Oh, we're not going to let those things go on. Daniel went into the lion's den knowing. My God, will turn things around. Others went into furnaces and Beatings and stonings, knowing my God will turn it around. Father, we thank you for it. Help us to take heed to listen to all the examples that have gone on before. To never lose heart. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.